This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A great article in the Hamilton Spectator today, The Changing Face of Hamilton. Steve Buse penned, uh, penned this one. Uh, where have all the kids gone? And of course, uh, this in regard to uh, some information released by the uh, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton has seen a, see a steep drop in the number of children in the area over the past couple of decades, despite a growth in population, which is odd, closing of schools as well. To talk more about all of this, Sarah Mayo is with the Social Planning and Research Council, uh, Council of Hamilton and is on the air with us now. Hello, Sarah. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. You know, we hear so much about Hamilton's population and, and, and how we're, you know, starting a, 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 on the upswing and all this sort of stuff. Are you surprised to see information like this? Yes, definitely. I mean, you're right that Hamilton's population is on the upswing. We've, we've been below provincial average for growth, um, for population growth for quite some time, and now we finally reach the provincial average. Um, but when we looked at it more deeply in terms of uh, where the population is growing and where it isn't, uh, we're not growing our number of children. How do you explain this? Well, our, our primary uh, thesis, uh, hypothesis, is really about economic uncertainty and affordable housing. Mm. We know that um, Hamilton's housing has been increasing uh, among the highest in the entire country. Our, our, our housing is obviously still cheaper than Toronto, but the rate of increase... Um, has been higher than Toronto at times, and and so people are um, not feeling that they have you know that they can um, move into a larger apartment or house to uh, accommodate children, and also uh, people people's jobs. People you know we know that other um, uh, research we've published uh, a big study by McMaster the Pepso um, poverty and and per employment precarity in Southern Ontario study by Wayne Luchuk found that uh, Hamilton had higher rates of um, precarious employment than uh, other GTA communities, GTAH communities. Um, so, so you know, when you have a, a low wage, or, or, or even if uh, you may not have a low wage, but if your uh, schedule is so uh, uncertain that uh, you can't see sort of how you would arrange childcare around your schedule, that uh, that makes it more, much more difficult to have children. How do our uh, rates in regard to children compare to other Canadian cities? Yeah, we looked at that a little bit, and uh, in in in, um, in Hamilton and uh, in in Ontario, and um, we have had the sort of large decrease in the number of children um, per um, sort of primary productive age adults. Um, and so we have a large number of, of people aged 25 to 35 in Hamilton, but um, our, our number of children has, has been declining. And, and, um, and so Toronto also has had declines, um, so, but, but Hamilton's has been uh, higher. Uh, you talk about uh, the, the number of millennials coming in and, and, and the younger demographics and such. Isn't it just a matter of time before they start having kids? I mean, you know, the upswing of Hamilton is relatively young and relatively new uh, compared to these numbers. Uh, do you think that uh, this will be vastly different, say, five, ten years from now? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, certainly it is a trend across Canada that, that people are having children later. Um, and so Hamilton isn't unique in that way. But um, when people have children later, they often have fewer children. Mm -hmm. And so even if uh, it kind of gets corrected, um, um, we, we, I, I, it, it won't be fully corrected um, just by sort of waiting. 
Um, and, and of course, in all this, you know, it's perfectly legitimate not to, it's a legitimate independent decision people can make. There's no judgment about whether or not people decide to have children or not, mm-hmm. um, or, or to have them later. The question is, are those free decisions? Are people sort of wishing that they could have children, but feeling like economically they're, they're just not stable enough? Um, and so for a city that, that, that has a motto of being the best place to raise a child, are we creating the economic conditions where, where people feel like they can, they can raise children? It does seem a little ironic now, that statement, the best place to raise a child when they're declining. That does yeah. seem a little odd, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And so, so it's something that, that, you know, there's many different types of ways that, that employers can play a role. Um, employers have to, um, you know, make it uh, possible for, um, for their employees to, to take time off, um, to have children, to, to um, um, make sure that, that people have um, schedules that they know in advance so that they can um, arrange proper childcare and not have their, ch- their schedule change at the last minute. Those kind of things are, are important steps that employers can take. Obviously, you know, in the short term, it may be a, a bit, um, you know, an employer uh, who only looks at the short term might say, oh, well, that's going to cost me money in the short term. But if you want your business to continue in Hamilton, you need to make sure that, that people are having children to create the next generation of consumers and employees. But that certainly doesn't sound, Sarah, like a Hamilton issue. I mean, that's, you know, that sounds like a, that, that's a societal issue that goes right the way across the country. That's certainly, sure. some, that's certainly something that's, not, that's unique to yeah. Hamilton, is it? Yeah, there's lots of these issues that are, um, you know, all demographic issues are, uh, there, there's major trends across the country, like the aging of the population, mm-hmm. things like that. But there's unique. Hamilton has sort of unique situations. So, so in this way, Ham, Hamilton's um, uh, problem with not enough children is amplified in in Hamilton compared to other places. And then doubly, we 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 have this unique situation where we have said we want to be the best place to raise a child. So because of that, I think there's there's more moral uh, pressure to to do the right thing when it comes to families. Uh, the the spec article talks about the closing of, of schools uh, over a period of time. Is that an accurate gauge of the child population, or is that just a shifting city? Um, the, the it is an accurate gauge. I mean, if even if, if children are, are being uh, raised in different parts of the city, um, we would close some schools and open uh, more new ones, and the net net number of schools um, wouldn't change. But this is a net decline in 32 schools. So we've actually closed more schools because some, mm-hmm. some new schools have been built in, a, in the suburbs. Um, so the net decline is 32 schools. Again, this is not unique. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Toronto is closing hundreds and hundreds of schools because they have a bigger population. But um, in Hamilton, we are, um, we, you know, it, it certainly affects, it, it, it affects families in so many different ways and communities. It means that kids uh, are bust more and yeah. and therefore um, uh, can't stay after school for after school activities. Mm. Um, uh, there's more people, kids ha- have to be driven to school because it's too far to walk and so there's more traffic and pollution around our schools. All these have important community effects that we're kind of ignoring uh, because we're not willing to do the hard work of saying, okay, how can we, um, how can we uh, encourage and, and promote uh, and make, make families uh, feel more secure so that they can they can have um, children uh, when they want to, not just when uh, they they can. Mm. Uh, is uh, how much of this do you think, Sarah, is the result of of 
of just uh, Hamilton, the final stages of Hamilton going through what it went through in the, you know, probably 80s, 90s and, and such. And, 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 and obviously now with it, with it turning the corner, uh, we won't see again the results of this for, for probably another 10 or so years. Uh, with the downtown core and, and, and the residential there that has suffered over the past couple of decades, how much of that is a contributing factor? And, and how much are you hoping that the revitalization of the downtown core will, will kick this up a notch? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Hamilton, like any city, is always undergoing changes. And, and right now we're certainly seeing an upswing um, in downtown development and, and more people and housing being um, being built in downtown. Um, and so the city in response has to make sure that services for children are, are downtown. There's, uh, for example, a park that's supposed to be built at Rebecca and um, and John Street, and there's, there's, the city has kind of paused on that. And, and, um, and so, you know, if it wants to make um, the, the, the young adults who are living there feel more like this is a, a neighborhood I could raise my children in, putting a park right there would be uh, a great way of doing that. And, you know, it's in their plans, and they, they, uh, they're taking a long time to, to put it into effect. So, so there's, um, the, the revitalization of downtown, I think, can contribute to uh, helping kids, uh, more, families feel more comfortable raising their kids wherever they live. And, and it happens now that, yeah, there are a lot of young adults living in downtown. You know, we all, Sarah, we always talk about how, you know, we've got to revitalize the downtown core. We've got to get more residents back into the downtown core. We've got, uh, we need to increase density, all this sort of stuff. Uh, you, you know, we're hearing these stories of condos being built downtown. But when we're doing any of this, are we thinking about kids? Is that where kids, is that where families want to raise kids? Is, are we building the cities that are attracting kids? That's you know, are our, our kids, or sorry, our cities for basically two demographics, the younger people that are coming up before they have kids, and then the people who downsize and come in maybe as seniors. Where's those middle people? I mean, is it unrealistic to say, well, geez, no wonder why, uh, you know, we're losing residents or kids downtown. They don't want to live that way. They want to live in a sprawl in an urban setting, like like up on the mountain or, 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 or suburbia sort of thing. I think, I think you... That would have been the case, um, you know, a generation ago. But but a lot of the young adults now are kids who exactly their parents did that, lived downtown and they uh, um, came and lived in the suburbs uh, to raise their children. Mm-hmm. And so the, most of these uh, young adults now were raised in suburbs. And they, they, they want something different. There's definitely advantages to suburbs, but there's, um, there's things they missed out on. And, and, and now with suburbs being kind of overtaken by cars and, and, and having to drive everywhere, people want to have an, an existence where they can um, walk with their children more often. And so that's one of the ways that, that downtown and revitalization of downtown is, is helping families um, feel more comfortable raising their children there. And I think we are seeing an increase in um, children living downtown. Central School, for instance, right behind City Hall, was slated for closure many years ago, and now its, it's enrollment has been going up. Um, and so, so there's, um, th- there's indications that, that there are more families. Um, you know, there's always going to be, we have to make sure that all neighborhoods are, are um, attractive for families. So and, and I guess that's the point that I'm making, Sarah. Is our downtown kid-friendly? I think it, 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 there's ways it, it could become more, but I think there's been there's been some important 
um, improvements. There's been uh, new schools that have been built downtown. Um, Edgar Davy um, um, and uh, Queen Victoria, for example, mm-hmm. have um, uh, you know totally new, brand new schools, and that's important. So, so there's you know there's more that can be done. Certainly, for example, the park at Rebecca and John would be um, a great example. And and we have so many neighborhoods close to downtown as well um, that 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 have been attracting families. So. You know, I think one of the main things is is making sure that the housing stays affordable in those neighborhoods around downtown. Those are the neighborhoods that have had the highest, some of the highest increases in uh, housing prices, and therefore making it more difficult for young families to to live there, and and forcing young families, n- not by choice, but but by economic circumstance, to live further away. Do you expect this trend to continue, or as we mentioned earlier, once the millennials make their way through, that this will change in the next decade? Well, it's always hard to predict the future, but we can, it's not, we, we can control it, you know. It depends on whether Hamilton, Hamilton's um, um, leaders, business leaders, community leaders, um, leaders on council decide to make uh, ma- make some investments and make some policy changes to ensure that, that families feel comfortable um, starting their families, uh, starting to have children, um, because if we don't, you know, it's, it's go- the trend will continue. But it can be reversed. It is in our control, and and there's um, uh, there's an opportunity for for uh, Hamilton to change. Sarah Mayo has been with us, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Hamilton has seen a steep drop in the number of kids in the city over the past couple of decades, despite growth in population. Sarah, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You heard us talking uh, earlier last week in regard to uh, the doctors. Of course, they rejected their deal uh, with the Ontario government. Concerned Ontario doctors, uh, a part of that, they have now come up with an idea to get the Ontario Medical Association and the province back at the bargaining table and to make the deal better for everyone. To talk about all of this, uh, Dr. Sohil Gandhi is with us, Concerned Ontario Doctors, and is with us now. Good afternoon, doctor. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Scott? Good. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, You're welcome. Before we get to uh, what your proposal is, uh, talk about the relationship with doctors in the OMA. Are are there being gaps bridged there? Because it seems that the OMA wanted you to take a deal and you guys were and girls weren't really interested in taking, and yet this is supposed to be the organization that represents you. Uh, Have have any bridges been been mended there? I mean, are we any closer to to coming up with a solution there? So, um, you know, medical politics is interesting. I've been practicing uh, medicine since... uh, 1992, and I can tell you that there's always going to be, when you have a group of doctors, some agreements and some uh, disagreements, and that's actually, um, if you look through the history of medical politics, that's actually just kind of par for the course. Um, At the end of the day, I think that both uh, the executive of the medical association and and I think the frontline doctors really want what's best for patient care. And so, yeah, there'll be some talking and there'll be some discussing and there'll be some back and forth going on right now, uh, as there should be. Um, and at the end, But at the end of the day, I think we'll focus uh, on what's best for patient care. All right. So what were your plans to settle this uh, issue? So 
um, I think it'd be a little bit uh, presumptuous to say that they were just uh, they were just my plans. As you know, um, there were a number of physicians who were, uh, you know, had significant concerns about the deal uh, that was proposed uh, uh, last summer or this past summer. And so, one of the things that we could do is we could actually sit back and criticize left, right, and center, and 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 throw stones. Or we could sort of say, well, okay, if we don't like this deal, is there something else that we can do? And so about 20 of us um, formed uh, a small working group to put together a discussion paper. And, and just, just to be clear, this, this is a discussion paper only. It's not actually been formally um, endorsed by the Concerned Ontario Doctors Group. It's something that a, a subgroup of them have put together. Mm-hmm. And what it's put there for is to say, well, you know, rather than just just put a blank sheet of paper on the table and say, let's start from here. Let's put some ideas on the table and then debate around those ideas and let that process take its course. And it's meant to sort of say, look, you know, we really kind of need to get on with things and we really need to, to figure out a way for doctors and government to work together because the people of Ontario deserve that. Uh, money always an issue, uh, uh, and of course, everyone's always looking for efficiencies. What are some of your some ideas, some of your suggestions, or of that of your group rather? So, um, a lot of the suggestions for efficiencies come from a desire to reduce waste in the healthcare system, because from the point of view of physicians, and certainly from what I personally have seen as a working frontline physician. There continues to be a lot of waste, particularly in the areas of bureaucracy. Um, one of the things that sat that didn't quite sit well with physicians in the tentative agreement that was rejected was that there was some call for some, um, you know, uh, some oversight of physicians and some um, looking at physicians and saying, "Well, where are you being efficient?" But mm-hmm. there was none on the other side, mm. right? There was none at looking at the bureaucracy uh, end of things. And so we've looked at that end of things, and we've said, look, there are some independent third-party agencies that can do a sort of look at the efficiencies of things like the LINs, that long-term care homes, look at um, uh, the bureaucracy that's entailed in CCAC, and let's work together to find some savings there, because right now there is really quite a bit of expenditure and bureaucracy there. So obviously the government is restricting what it's handing over to you. What you're saying to them is, hey, let's look at, at, at what you're doing and we have some ideas on how that can be more efficient. Yeah, and what we're asking for is, is sort of true, a true look at co-managing the healthcare system with the government in a partnership. One of the things that was presented to us by the government, and one of the things the government spin doctors used to say a lot is, well, this last agreement that you, in, that you rejected had co-management of the healthcare system. But, but it really didn't. If, if you looked at the agreement, all it said was, well, there's a bilateral committee to look at the physician services budget, and that's, that's a fair thing to do, I would say. And there's another bilateral committee to look at physician human resources, and again, that's a fair thing to say. But there was nothing in there to look at the healthcare system as a whole. There was nothing in there to look, you know, for me, for example, as a family physician, when I, on those rare occasions, when I actually have taken on a new patient, I use a system called Healthcare Connect, which is a government-imposed system. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to new patients who've come through that system, and one of those guys who's an engineer told me he had to speak to five full-time employees to go through the registering process to be on a list so that a family physician would accept him. And I mean, 
that's ridiculous, right? Why do you need five full-time employees, some of whom are probably on the sunshine list, to be able to go through a registering process to get a family doctor? So it's those kind of things that frontline physicians see, that people who are in sort of the, the Ministry of Health bureaucracy in their basement dwelling cubicles, they don't see. And it's those kind of things that we'd like to work with to say, let's make it more efficient for everyone. I think that's exactly the sort of thing that Ontarians want to hear, don't you, doctor? I mean, you're the experts. Shouldn't you be telling them how to do it most efficiently? Well, that's a bit of a softball question, and I appreciate that. No, and I don't mean it to be a softball question, yeah. but, you know, you're getting people who aren't qualified, who aren't there on the front lines. The very least you should be, uh, your organization should be, is more involved in the process, and, and not just in treating the people, but best how to run an efficient system. I mean, that's yeah. just common sense. Yeah, and, and we'd like to be on, on the front lines. And that was one of the things that was very disappointed, disappointing about the agreement was it really, you know, when you read it, when you really read it as opposed to listening to the spin around it, it really didn't account for any of that. And, you know, there are a number of physicians who want to be more engaged in the healthcare system and provide that kind of benefit. You know, in my neck of the woods, uh, if I have time, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, I implemented a system. I was a healthcare lead physician for a while. I implemented a system where there was secure electronic communication and sharing of data between the nursing homes and the, uh, and the family physicians. And what this allowed was the family physicians to get direct messages on their own uh, electronic medical record system about how their patients were doing. And it allowed for quicker turnaround in care. So if a patient was sick, the family physician was able to get back to the nursing home much quickly. Mm-hmm. We reduced admissions to our hospital by over 50% from nursing homes by mm-hmm. implementing this system. And the cost of this system was $70,000. Like, that's it, mm-hmm. right? You know, I couldn't get that system approved by the local health integration network in my area Yeah. because they wanted it to go through eHealth. Then they wanted it to go through the Ministry of Health IT committee. Then they wanted it to go through uh, some other, in, uh, you know, internal in, uh, in IT committee. And then they sent it back. And, I mean, the thing cost 70000 bucks. Like, in the grand scheme of things, we have a $50 billion budget. We've cut back admissions to our hospital, which is the most expensive uh, care that's out there, by 50%. And how come I can't get this idea further up the, uh, up the food chain? Right? Wh- how come can't get it implemented? How do you explain, Linz? Wh- what do they do? Why are they becoming the target of everybody's... Uh, when, when we're looking for inefficiencies, people are pointing towards them. Um, well, my personal opinion, and, and you'll have to appreciate that I'm, I'm quite biased, uh, my personal opinion is that the Linz were put there to protect uh, health ministers. Um, they were put there to protect uh, the, protect them the in what way from getting ba- well from getting uh, bad feedback. Like if you look at the situation in the Southwest Lynn that I'm familiar with, um, there's a really long wait- waiting list for joint replacement surgery in yeah. the Southwest Lynn. It's about a year and a half. Um, so people complain, of course, because why are we waiting so long? We're mm-hmm. living we're living in pain all the time. Why are we in pain? What the health minister can do is he can say, well, you see, that's a local problem, and he can defer all the questions to the LIN and have the LIN deal with all the flack and the feedback instead of taking direct responsibility for it. Hmm. Uh, Now, that's my personal opinion, because I've been in healthcare long enough to know that there were agencies before the LIN, and even before that, there was something called the District Health Council before the LIN, and even before that, the ministry took direct responsibility for funding hospitals. 
Whereas now these agencies have been put in place, and now he can defer all of the criticism. Uh, okay, here's the hardball question. What about sure. all those doctors that are taking advantage of the system? What about the, you know, we heard the government talking about these specialists that are making a fortune doing, you right. know, so various things. Heard, yeah, yeah. He, he, the Hoskins has targeted the ophthalmologist. Let's, let's be clear. That's who we, he's gone after. Uh, and he's talking about ophthalmologists doing eye surgery, and he mentioned one making $6.6 million or billing $6.6 million. That's That's before over a day. Mm-hmm. So that's not how much uh, has been taken home. Let me ask you this. If you or your, or your mother, I don't know how old you are, um, supposing your vision is failing and you need cataract surgery to get your vision better, and your ophthalmologist who's got a six-month waiting list, that's what it is in our neck of the woods, turns around and says, well, you know, I've reached my cap. I can't bill anymore. Instead of you waiting six months, you're going to have to wait nine months or a year. How are you going to feel? Right? Because the reality is the only reason the ophthalmologists do that many operations is because the people need the operations. Right? You can't take out cataracts unless people have reached, uh, where the, unless the cataracts have ripened. There's a certain stage where right. they get to where it's medically appropriate to remove them. And we've got a population in which so in other words, if there was so in other words, if there were more doctors, uh, the surgery would be done quicker, and each would be making yeah. less money. Yeah, yeah, because the need is still there. Yeah, um, you have to look at the actual need of the, the healthcare needs of the population. So where does this go from here, doctor? Where, where, uh, you know, obviously the last deal was rejected. Rather than sit and wait for the, for the dance to begin, you guys were proactive and, and you've come up with uh, some suggestions. What happens now or, or what sort of response have you had? Right. So what's happened now is that the discussion paper has, uh, is being given to the uh, Ontario Medical Association as a way of saying, look, come on, let's, let's get on with this. Uh, it's also being shared, uh, it's going to be shared amongst the concerned Ontario group as a whole, because remember, it was just a working group that worked on it. Um, and there will be some back and forth, because this, uh, there wasn't even 100% agreement amongst all 20 of us on each every single part of this discussion paper, right? And that's natural, and that's normal, and that's part of the process of developing a consensus document. Uh, and so feedback will be taken, the, the document will be massaged, there'll be some added, and there'll be some back and forth, and hopefully there'll be some good, respectful discussion about the, the pros and cons. And then once it's modified, we're really hoping that the ministry will listen and, and work with us cooperatively in terms of getting health care on the right track for the people of Ontario. Uh, you were talking about this group of 20 physicians that have come together from uh, from uh, various areas and, and to come up with this rough sort of draft, uh, mm-hmm. obviously difficult just to even get consensus from those 20. Does that, does that prove how difficult this problem is in trying to get it accepted by everyone across the land? I can guarantee you it will not be accepted by everyone across the land when it's finally done. Yeah. Um, and that's just the nature of any agreement. I don't know of any... Um, any labor-type agreement in history that's ever had 100% approval of all the members. Uh, in this report, you were talking about a mechanism to identify medically unnecessary services. Can you elaborate yep. on that anymore? Yeah, and so um, one of the things we want to do is we want to put a proper committee together that looks at things that are um, not necessary to do anymore, given the advancements in um medical care. So, for example, um, if someone needed uh, a treatment for, say, a bone density, um, 
bone density treatments are restricted to every three years, for example, right now. Is that really appropriate because it takes a very, very long time for bone density to change? Is that something that should be looked at and said, well, instead of every three years, we should be doing it every five years instead? Um, So that would be a good example of somewhere where you could reduce the amount of certain testing without compromising patient care and save the health system some money. So it's those kind of things we want to look at. Hmm. Uh, What about moving walk-in clinics closer to ERs? How would that be an advantage? Uh, so the advantage there is that it's uh, less costly on the healthcare system to have a patient go to a walk-in clinic than to a uh, emergency department. And unfortunately, a significant number of patients uh, currently go to emergency departments for, for various reasons. Um, some go for convenience sake. It, it must be said that because it's just closer to where they live. Um, some go because they don't really have any other idea of any other place to go to that could be potentially more convenient. So for uh, for patients who have what we call um, level four and level five, that's the least urgent levels of, uh, of medical issues, um, putting a walk-in clinic nearby gives the ability to defer some of the patients from going to a more expensive level of care to a less expensive level of care that can still treat their needs. What about a timeline for this, doctor? What happens now? Um, And what's the mood of doctors now that that last deal was rejected and as we move forward into a new deal? So, um, well, we're not moving forward into a new deal right now because the uh, Minister of Health has said that he's not going to negotiate just yet until the OMA comes back to him. So the mood of the doctors right now, I think doctors are still, unfortunately, pretty disheartened. It's been a rough two years. Um, And there have been a number of, of, frankly, infantile attacks by the Ministry of Health on physicians, uh, even to the extent of singling out uh, some particular specialties as he's done. So, So doctors are pretty demoralized, but they still want what's best for their patients at the end of the day. And so I think that if put forth... um, in a respectful manner, saying, look, this is a discussion paper. Can we at least try and do some good here? I do think the majority of physicians would be on board with that. Dr. Sohail Gandhi's been with us, Concerned Ontario Doctors. The group Concerned Ontario Doctors has come up with some ideas to get the OMA and the province back to the bargaining table to make the deal better for doctors and patients across Ontario. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. All right. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in David Hyde, security consultant, uh, David Hyde and Associates. Lots to talk to him about. Uh, The latest Canada's Border Services has started a firearms campaign to remind our American friends to keep their guns at home. Has it got to the point where... There's been that many situations where we need an advertising campaign. David Hyde is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Before we get to the guns and the the border issue, I I just want to go around and and ask you a couple of uh, security type of questions because we haven't talked to you in in quite a while. I want to get your thoughts on the Strathroy uh, domestic terrorist uh, situation. Are you concerned that because obviously he's deceased now and there will not be a trial, that we will not maybe hear everything about this case? Well, I think you're right, Scott. Um, there are some concerns, and there's a lot of questions that really are remain to be answered. You know, with respect to how um, how effective the authorities were able to monitor this individual. Um, you know, what type of 
um, you know, adjustments may be required to some of the, the laws. I know that being reviewed by the liberals right now, quite slowly, uh, reviewing the Bill C-51, which is kind of the t- anti-terror enhancements that were made with a lot of outcry from um, privacy and human rights advocates. So I think we need to kind of know a little bit more about that. Um, what you know, they, they knew that this individual was talking to people that had been involved in terrorist attacks, uh, but they weren't able to get through to those communications, Scott, and, and actually monitor an, uh, this individual's discussions uh, because of limitations under the law. So I think there are a number of things that we, we need to know, and, and I am a bit concerned the fact that it now said he is deceased, um, and there seems to be a little bit of a desire by the authorities to kind of, you know, um, th- this chapter's over, nothing, nothing to see here. And I think there, there are some things that we need to look at and discuss moving forward. So you are concerned about the fact that we really found out about this through the FBI, and it was local police that, that, that really handled this situation. Um, uh, and that's not the police, that's not their fault. They were just bound by Canadian law and, and what they can do in this country. How much of a concern is that, that we found out from outside sources about this? Well, I mean, it's not unprecedented. You know, we ha- that has happened before. And by the way, we've shared information with the Americans before, perhaps not quite to this level, but it does go both ways, Scott. But look, this is an individual that was very, very well known to the authorities had espoused all kind of things, had actually been in, in the criminal justice system, was under a peace bond. So there was a lot of different risk factors that were going off on the national security team's radar. And so I guess the question is, you know, how was this individual able to, you know, continue, it seems, to, um, you know, uh, refine uh, terror attack plans? How were they able to assemble the explosives and, and pull the devices together? Um, you know, was there, were they collaborating with anybody online, um, perhaps through protected communications or encrypted uh, apps that, we, that, that the authorities weren't aware of? So I, I think it does. It raises those questions. And, and I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about, I think Canadians would, what are the factors in general that the national security, the RCMP, the inset teams would use to monitor these people? There, there are maybe a dozen people on peace bonds to do with national terror investigation, Scott. But there are also, we know, probably up to a couple hundred that have been to Iraq and Syria, many of whom have come back. So there's kind of, if you will, a watch list or a, or a list that some of these folks are on where they are subject to not, not, not being allowed to leave the country or enhanced screening or observation of some kind or their communications might be monitored. Let's know a little bit more about that, such as they can share with us. I'd like to know just why... Um, this individual just flew under the radar. Really, it was by sheer luck that the FBI advised the uh, RCMP when they did. And it, just by the skin of the teeth, we were able to uh, intercept this plot. Uh, one other issue that I wanted to ask you that's uh, related but not related, there's a, a study that was uh, co-authored by a, a former RCMP and Privy Council office uh, as well as a journalist from Egypt. Uh, this was in the Canadian press today, and I'll read the first line. It says, Many mosques and Islamic schools in Canada are placing young people at risk by espousing or at least not condemning extremist teaching uh, teachings, so says this new study. Your thoughts on this? You know, Scott, this is obviously a very um, sensitive topic, right? Because mm-hmm. any time that you're getting right down to the nub of someone's religion, religious, um, you know, postalization, uh, religious materials, 
people are going to have different views, right? And, and the way I approach this is absolutely ag- agnostically. I, I, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not Muslim personally, um, but I, I'm also not fervent in my religious belief in, of any stripe. So I can be fairly open-minded to it. And the way I look at this is, you know, um, there are t- you know, facets of different religions that can be taken to extremes. The Muslim religion, Islam, Islamic faith, it seems to me, is particularly um, vulnerable to that with respect to some of the older writings that can be literally interpreted to mean things that, are, that can be quite violent and, 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 and obviously abhorrent, in a similar vein to Christianity, but much more so. There's more, mm-hmm. there's more in those old writings, no question. And there are things that are quite concerning. So your average mo- moderate uh, Muslim uh, adherent or Islam, uh, uh, like Islamic faith um, proponent is not going to take it that way. But that's, and that's, I think, quite widely understood. And I think that the moderate Muslim believer, if you will, is no threat to anybody and, and, and just is going about their lives and they're fairly well integrated into our communities. The, the, the concern comes if we have extremist literature that does promote, um, you know, bias and hatred and some of the thinking that's anti other religions or that it, it just um, can, can, impact pliable minds, young minds, towards extreme-type positions and views, that's antithetical to any moderate view of the Muslim faith, and I think it's antithetical to the democracy that we live in here. So I am concerned about it, Scott. I, I, I haven't read deeply into that study, but I am uh, aware of the fact that this has been widely reported that there is some concerning, fairly extreme-type literature in some of these institutions, fairly mainstream uh, faith-based institutions, and if, if that's the case, then I think it is a concern, and I think that it's up to the um, the, the moderate Muslims, the voices of authority under that um, banner, if you will, to come forward very strongly here, and to identify the offending materials, and to make it and and to take action, because we live, Scott, in times where it doesn't take very much uh, to really, you know, get someone moving down a path to kind of take, um, uh, you know, this kind of um, <clears throat> faith and religious beliefs to a very dark, sinister place where we move down towards the path to violence. It's online, it's available, um, you know, in fairly mainstream circles. We do not need it to be within uh, Muslim schools and faith-based institutions um, in this country. No matter how sensitive this issue, David, are these, these are conversations we have to have, aren't they? They absolutely are. I mean, I'm always a wee bit uncomfortable because I think there are people that, you know, I, I never want to step on anyone's beliefs. I'm mm-hmm. very open-minded, and, and I have no issue with any, any type of faith and gender issues and people's belief systems and, uh, uh, you know, preferences. That's great, and, and we're, all, we're a very uh, tolerant and a very, um, you know, varied society. But I think when it comes out that there is a particular concern these days with, a particular faith that's being taken in a direction that is very harmful and maybe against the mainstream of that faith, but nonetheless it does exist. I think that it's up to that faith, the members of that faith, the, 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 um, the, the, the voices in there that have influence, to make sure that they're doing everything they can to expunge that type of material from those institutions and those places so, so that you know, ch- um, children who are impressionable or, or, or younger people can't come across them. And you're right, Scott. These are conversations we have to take place in the world in which we live. 
Well said. All right, let's move on to the gun issue uh, and uh, border services, uh, I guess, advising and, and running a campaign, telling uh, friendly, uh, uh, very kindly telling our U.S. visitors to live their gun, uh, leave their guns at home. Do a lot of Americans bring their guns into this country every year? It's actually surprising, Scott, um, and it's, I believe it's been increasing. I mean, it's not a it's not you know an endemic issue. I mean, I think it's in the number of hundreds of cases that you find um, the ambassador bridge crossing is is one of the more um, common issues, for example. And there might be a hundred cases, one hundred and fifty cases in in certain you know periods of time. So again, it it, it it certainly is a problem, and it's often you know just an errant act. Um, obviously, in some parts of the states, let's look at Texas, for example, concealed carry permit. You know, firearms are just almost almost part part of part of people's bodies in some parts of the of that state, right? So they get very used to just the firearm being a part of them. Much as I, mean, I hate to say it, but people pull on clothing and that. So you know, they, they there are people that might not. It might not occur to them com- coming across the border that they are bringing a firearm in. I mean, you, it's a bit surprising, but that is the reality. At the same time, gun smuggling across the border happens. We have had cases where our Canadian border services has intercepted um, attempts to bring firearms over. You can bring firearms from the U.S. into Canada legally, but there's paperwork needs to be filled out. It has to be transported in an approved manner, Scott, uh, the, the, this, the, the border services have the right to review how it's being transported, look at the background of the individual and any criminal record. There's a lot of things that need to be kind of dotted and crossed, if you will, to allow firearms to be brought in. So but if you are, so if you are an American and you uh, you, you do have your uh, illegal uh, weapon and such, you can bring it over. There are ways to do it, but you have to jump through quite a few hoops in order to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's hunters, Scott, right? Some of those hunting regions right. that, are, that are on the border where, you know, uh, the, people have, um, you know, there's, there's paperwork that, that gets filled out, right. you know, Canadian border type paperwork, government paperwork, and that has to be filled out before. You can't just arrive at the border with a gun and say, yeah, let yeah. me in. Yeah. Um, you know, this paperwork has to be filled out before, has to be, it's like a permit, has to be approved, and then the paperwork is reviewed at the border with the border agent as well as that individual's questioned. And then they, their firearms are going to be inspected. And it may be, you know, there may be certain restrictions on the types of firearms, the types of ammunition, the amount of ammunition. So there are restrictions around it, Scott. And if people fall afoul of that, um, you know, the, the, the least serious thing that can happen is that the guns can be confiscated. Uh, people can be turned away at the border. But, but people have been jailed. Their, their vehicles have been impounded. There's a lot of things that can flow from um, inappropriate uh, attempts to bring firearms across the U.S. border into Canada. Do you think there's that many Americans that are attempting to do this? I mean, as you said, in some states, this is just as regular as your clothing. Uh, and, and I can see lots of these people not wanting to go anywhere without them. Uh, do you think this happens a lot undetected? I mean, you, you talked about the hundred or so cases that happened. Those are ones that reported. Is it that easy? Is that that difficult or easy to get to get one across undetected? Or is this, I guess, something that that uh, border guards are looking for, specifically from certain states, probably as well? Yeah, no question that they use uh, a protocol that tells them. You know, certain states where there are more liberal gun laws, mm-hmm. where you're allowed concealed carry, for example and that kind of thing, they're going to be looking more closely at individuals that emanate from those states. But obviously, it's kind of hard to tell 
where someone's coming from when they arrive at the border. I mean, the license plate could give them away, but they could be from somewhere else, or they could have people with them from other places in the, in the state. So, you know, it, 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 they, they certainly have become more uh, focused on it, Scott, in the last, you know, six months to a year. Um, obviously, terrorism is part of that in terms of the potential for uh, threats to flow over the border um, and firearms and weapons and explosives to flow over the border. Um, you know, so to answer your question, I, you know, I, I think there are certainly cases, and, and there have been cases that have come to light, where there has been illegal uh, movement of firearms and explosives over the border. But I believe that the border agents are getting a lot better, um, you know, both with their, uh, the approach that they're using, the technology they're using. They're able to, um, I think, do a better job now. But again, what they're finding is that sometimes... Certainly, the claims are anyway that it's 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 forgetfulness. It's just an oversight. It's someone had a gun in their bag. Someone had a gun in their car. That hmm. They forgot to sanitize <laughs> that before they left and they arrived at the border. Um, and they're trying to educate the just the U.S. population in general who come over to Canada. They need to remember because it sure wastes a lot of time and it can get them into legal jeopardy they could otherwise avoid. Do Americans ever get held up for their guns in Canada? I'm sorry, Scott? Would Americans ever be robbed of their guns in Canada? I mean, you know, we always talk about how, you know, that's such an issue. I mean, if they're that sort sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If they're that lazy when it comes to the care of their firearms, are they easy targets? Well, that certainly is a good question, Scott. I don't know about the stats on that, but I would be concerned about any... One of the risks of, of, of more widely available firearms, and as we know, the states has, um, you know, the, 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 the gun laws, and they have the Second Amendment, and they, and they have got more liberal gun laws than we do, you know, across the boards. Um, my concern is that the more firearms you have that are in the possession of everyday folk, the more they get stolen, the more they get misplaced, the more they get into the hands of children. So... Imagine this, if you have a firearm owner who's not responsible enough to realize that they have a firearm in their car, in their bag, on their person, when they come across a border, I wonder how responsible that firearm owner is hmm. with respect to locking up that firearm so kids can't get at it, with respect to locking their car uh, and putting it in a, in a gun case when it's being, when it's being uh, moved from A to B that can't be accessed very easily. I wonder how responsible they are there. And I think it certainly increases the risk of firearm-related injuries and even deaths hmm. because of allowing these firearms to flow over the border unaccounted for. Is it impossible to think we can ever stop that flow across the border? I mean, considering what our society's like and what theirs is like and their Second Amendment and such, is it impossible to, to keep these out? Well, it, it's the same thing Scott is saying. Is it impossible you know, to, prevent, terrorism, to yeah. prevent terrorist acts and things? And at the end of the day, you can do a lot of things. And I'm impressed at the, at the authorities doing an awareness campaign. That's a great thing. I, like, you know, we're aware that they're doing more now to prevent this problem, which, which is definitely of concern. <clears throat> but there's no such thing as perfect security. There's no such thing as perfect screening. There's no such thing as an overall <clears throat> solution for any of these challenges. So it's a matter of doing the best we can. Uh, it's a matter of educating the populations that are affected. Uh, and it's a matter of being very stern. I mean, the border services agents have rules they go by, there are laws, but they also can exercise a little bit of discretion with respect to whether they throw the book at this person or cut them a little bit of leeway because they said that they forgot or some other thing. And, and it may be that some of the punitive aspects 
may need to to be a little bit more um, uh, front and center to really underscore the message that look, this is just not this is this is a zero tolerance. We just can't, even though it may have been accidental. That's just too big of a deal. You can't just walk away from this and lose your gun. You're hmm. going to get charged. Hmm. Uh, just like Donald Trump wants to build a wall around Mexico, should we be building one around the United States to keep the guns out? Well, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and I, I think I can I can sense your tongue in your cheek there slightly, Scott. And I think the reality here is that I, I think we have fairly reasonable border control, and and the the, the advantage that we have, I think here, um, you know, is that we we don't have um, uh, you know, such a connection or a contiguous border connection to areas where there's absolutely unaccounted for, um, you know, explosives and really heavy weaponry, like some of the areas in the Middle East, for example, another portion of the world where, you know, thing, firearms and ammunition can flow through very, very easily. Yes, the U.S. is awash with weapons. We know that. But our borders are, f- are quite tightly controlled. And, and I think that we um, overall... We, we do a pretty good job, and I don't think the addition of any other physical security means um, is going to do a lot. I think that the investment, in my view, should be in awareness, but it also should be in technology and additional manpower. There's been some pushback recently from the border services folks that they may not be adequately staffed all the time, and, and, and there may be uh, you know, a few gaps because they can't always keep up to the flow um, you know, of traffic over the border. So I think that that's probably an area, Scott, that that may need attention. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant. David Hyde and Associates talking about Canada's border services, starting a campaign to remind our American visitors to leave their guns at home. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.